This morning's reading is from Psalm 27, verse 1 to 5. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. This is the word of the Lord. Cowboy leads a different kind of life when there were cowboys. A dying breed. Still means something to me, though. A couple of days, we'll move this herd across the river, driving through the valley. Oh, <laughs> there's nothing like ringing in a herd. See, now that's great. Your life makes sense to you. <laughs> What's so funny? You city folk, you worry about a lot of stuff. Stuff. My wife basically told me she doesn't want me around. She read it. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying. Uh, how old are you? 38. 39. Yeah. You all come off here about the same age, same problems. You spend about 50 weeks a year getting knots in your rope, and then, and then you think two weeks up here will time for you. None of you get it. Do you know what the secret of life is? No, what? this your finger one thing just one thing you stick to that and everything else don't mean much that's great but what's the one thing that's what you gotta figure out so <laughs> That's what I'd like uh, each of us to try and figure out this morning, uh, one thing, as we look at verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 27. Uh, well, we just watched the climax or sort of moment of illumination in this movie, City Slickers. From here, each character will go through uh, trial as they risk their lives to bring back a herd of cattle. And during this, and through this moment of extremity, this trial, each character, each of the main characters, wishes that he had one thing. He discovers that there was one thing he wished that he had. And that's what suffering and extremity does. It reveals the one thing that we yearn for. The one place we wish we were. The one person with whom we long to be. That's what trial, that's what extremity does. And because as human beings, we tend to wear, I think you'll agree, these different masks, depending on the situation, depending on the people we're with. But nothing tears away those masks like extremity to reveal who we really are underneath. Now, last week we spoke about uh, the person we wish that we were, the person we wish to be during moments of extremity. And today is the reality check. Who are we really during those moments, during hard times, during pressure? 
That's where David finds himself, as we read this morning. He finds himself in extremity. And in this time, he reveals that one thing in his life. One thing I ask of Yahweh. This is what I seek after. So I'm going to be asking you to examine this morning, what is your one thing? And then we're going to look at David's one thing. So first, what is your one thing? And in asking this question, I want to ask also, why is this one thing so important to your survival? Because your circumstances are never guaranteed to change. They may, but they may not. See, I sometimes think that as Christians, or when you trust your life to Christ, and the joy of that moment where you know that you will be with Him forever, and you are with Him now, God, we think that our lives, or the quality of our lives, or the circumstances of our lives will automatically improve. But Jesus has this great parable where He says that the wheat and the weeds, see, they grow up together. Use the analogy of people who are in the kingdom of God and people who are not. They grow up together. So when disaster comes, Christians and non-Christians suffer together alike. Right? So when, when Hurricane Ivan came a number of years ago, the homes of Christians flooded along with the homes of non-Christians. Circumstances don't necessarily change. David recognizes this. So in verses 4 and 5, These are sweet verses, right? But notice what's not eliminated. Notice that David never stops saying, as in verse 5, the day of trouble. The day of trouble is still the day of trouble. But, as we also see in these verses, there is this sort of hiding principle. Every person seeks in their life. Okay? Everyone looks to find some place to take shelter during these moments in life that are so difficult, that are a crucible to us. So how do you determine what that is? What is that hiding place for you? What is that thing, that one thing that you seek? I think you can determine it through a simple phrase. And that is, if I only had, if I only had, Especially in moments of extremity, when hardship, when life is pressing in on you. This is a crucial phrase. What would you say in these moments? Try it with me here. Here's some examples. Let's try it together. If I only had a little more money. Right? If I, we said this before. If I only had a little more, I'd have more time with my family. Right? I'd have more time for myself. I could help other people. If I only just had a little more. Or what about if I only had... A beer or a drink. Now, we don't ever use this phrase, right? Because no one ever wants to admit that their one thing is alcohol. So they say, uh, I could really use a beer or drink, right? You're, you're at work, you're at the office, things are hard, they're difficult, they're pressing on you, man, I could really use a beer. When you find yourself saying this again and again, if I only had my family around, if only I was near my family, if only my sisters were near me, then I'd be okay. If I only had respect, I could deal with all this other junk in my life. If I just had some respect. If I only had cake, 
cookies, comfort food, Twinkies. I don't know. Does anyone eat Twinkies anymore? Maybe. I don't know. That could be your thing. If I only had these things, in the moment when life is pressing in, how do you fill in that blank? If I only had this. My question for you is, are you sure, are you sure that that one thing that will sustain you with satisfaction and hope. Are you sure it's going to sustain you with satisfaction and hope? Because that is everything, isn't it? I've been reading through Proverbs this summer, and one of my favorite Proverbs that I think anyone can relate to, whether you're familiar with the Bible or not, it says this. It says, hope deferred. This is Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. You know what it means to defer something? It's to put something off, right? To procrastinate. I love that word, defer. And a lot of us, we're pretty good at that, right? We like to defer a lot. Put it off a little while. But have you ever tried, have you ever experienced having hope deferred? Having something you're looking forward to, something you know that will sustain you, that will satisfy you, and it's constantly put off, put off. Put off. So that even in the present, you don't have anything you can look forward to in the future. Anything you believe in that you know, you're confident, you believe will sustain you. That makes the heart sick. If you've ever had that feeling, it's like a pit in the stomach. Now I want to get personal here for a moment. I am a passionate guy. Alright, and I would even say that in many ways, um, (laughs) I live... For pleasure. I'm wired in a way that I live for pleasure. Now, you, you're like, oh my, I'm, should I come to this church? Right? I mean, I understand. I'll hang with me for a moment. I, I, I have tried to put this off. I, for the longest time, I didn't want to believe this about myself. I remember like 10 years ago, my brother making a comment to me. This was a long time ago. He said, uh, Ryan, I can see how you're, you're a person who's prone to addiction. I was like, What? Just like a brother to tell you that, right? An older brother will tell you something that, you know, your ears are big, you got a big nose. Like he's told me all these kinds of things, right, before. You're prone to addiction. And it stuck with me for, for, for all these years. And, and you know when something sticks with you for that long, there might be something to it. So, so living for pleasure, but, and this bothered me, but then I started to think of some of my heroes of the faith. St. Augustine of Hippo. Uh, C.S. Lewis, John Piper. I want to come back to some of these names later. But for all of them, they were people of passion who lived for pleasure. But the key for their life is that they placed their passions in and found their pleasure in Christ. So if you're like me, you live for pleasure, and if you're honest with yourself, you don't really want to admit that, there is a place for you in God's kingdom. Because all the pleasures... All the eternal pleasures, all the lasting pleasures are found in Christ. And David found that as well. What was David's one thing? Was encountering the living God. We see that here, right? Through worship, through all kinds of different means. Worship, prayer, meditation on the word. Whatever the channel was, the experience and the encounter were real. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. Right? To do this gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. To seek Him. That's all I ask for in life. And we find testimony in God's Word that God wants to give us pleasure 
to give us satisfaction, to give us contentment through himself. So Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. This is David here again. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus said, this happened in John 6, 34 and 35. Some people asked him, Sir, we want this bread always. They were looking for physical bread. But Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's a satisfaction where our pleasures are quenched in Christ. Paul knew it as well. In the book of Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Paul admitted, hey, I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Like we sung about just a little earlier. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well fed or hungry. Whether living in plenty or in want. And if you read the book of Philippians in its context, you'll find out what the secret is. Especially if you read chapter 3 where Paul says, I long to know Christ. The fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and somehow attaining the resurrection. Paul wanted to know all of it. All of who Christ is. And experience it. He wanted to know Christ. That was the secret of being content. And friends, these are examples from the Bible 2,000 years ago, but it's not just 2,000 years ago. We find Christians from different eras and backgrounds desiring one thing and then experiencing one thing. And that is an encounter with God. So for instance, St. Augustine, he said this, Give me someone who loves and he will understand what I am trying to say. Give me someone whose heart yearns, who feels the nostalgia of loneliness in this exile here on earth, who is a thirst and sighs for a fatherland eternal. Give me such a one, and he will understand what I am trying to say. But if I must explain myself to ice-cold indifference, he will not understand. For some of those, those are foreign words. It sounds like a great Hallmark card. But this was real for Augustine. He had experienced this and he wanted more in his life. When Blaise Pascal died, they found sewed in the lining of his coat a diary entry of an experience that happened to him for two hours from midnight to about 2 a.m. one night in 1654. And he wrote in this little diary entry an experience of the love of God as fire. And it changed his life, transformed his life. And so he always wanted to carry it near his heart. A common nun by the name of Teresa of Avila was summoned by the Pope who had heard of her encounters with God. And so upon asking her to tell him of those encounters, she said that God was a divine madman. She said, he's pazzo de more. He's ebro e more. He is Crazed with love. He is drunk with love. Finally, uh, C.S. Lewis, who lived much of his life for shallow pleasures and was a, when he came to know Christ, he came to this conclusion. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who goes, who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. I want to review this. This is a 4th century African bishop, a 16th century French mathematician and philosopher, a 16th century Catholic nun, and a 20th century British college professor. They had one thing in common. They desired and then experienced an encounter with the same God. This happens across the centuries, and I want to say this because it's an encounter that is still a reality today. It is possible today to have this kind of encounter with the living God through Jesus Christ and trust in Him. Now, in many ways, could end the sermon right here. Some of you are like, thank you. But that would miss the twist here. I actually thought it would kind of end and land around this area when I imagined the series 27 in my mind's eye. But something happened. No matter how many times we read God's Word, how many times you read like a, a parable or a story or some prophetic verses or poetic verses in the Psalms, no matter how many times you read something, God the Holy Spirit can reveal and teach to you something new. Or at least give you a fresh application of something old, of an old truth. And that happened to me preparing this this week. Because I love this Psalm 27.4. One thing I ask the Lord, this is what I seek to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, etc. It's a verse I've committed to memory. I love this verse. But there's something that I hadn't noticed before that jumped out this week. As I was reading it, and actually through the help of uh, James Boyce, a famous old pastor from Philadelphia, his commentary on the Psalms, it's helpful as well. But there's something I miss, and that is there's a nostalgia to these verses. David gets nostalgic. David, he longs for experiencing God, which can happen anywhere. And David knew that. But he doesn't just long to encounter God anywhere. Not just anywhere. He longs to encounter God in the tabernacle, which is basically the precursor to the temple. This is the tent that David had erected when he brought the Ark of the Covenant from Kiriath-Jerim down to Mount Zion. Okay, and this, this is where God's presence was sort of housed in a very special and particular way. Alright, so look at how David basically like loots. Look with me again at these verses. He loots the Hebrew dictionary for words to describe in the temple. Look at all these words he uses for God's house. First of all, he says, verse 4, house of Yahweh. His temple, his shelter, his tent. That's in two verses. Now, why does this matter? Why does this matter for us? Because I think we think of fellowship with God as being wholly intangible. It's always invisible of the Spirit. And rightly so to a large extent. So, for instance, I gave a uh, sermon back in June on worship in which I described worshiping God as a anytime, any place experience and expression of the glory of God. And that's true from what we know, what Jesus says in John chapter 4. Having said that, the ancients, the people back in these days, they never thought of worship in this way. They thought of fellowship with God, joining the tangible and the intangible. 
And so we, when we hear them speak and we praise to God in the Psalms, we hear about a longing to go up to Jerusalem to appear before the presence of God, described as a physical thirst. Psalm 42. They crave to be satisfied with the pleasures of his house. Psalm 65. There's this connection between the spiritual and the physical. And what does this mean for us? I think that we have too often swung to an extreme of the spiritual to the exclusion of the tangible. And so, yes, worship is an anytime, anywhere experience. But we sort of take that for granted. And it ends up sometimes being a little time, almost no place experience. Let me show you where I'm going with this. Is anyone here nostalgic? Is anyone here a particularly nostalgic person? You like to look back at the past and... I am extremely nostalgic. I mean, like, maddeningly nostalgic. In fact, I, I sort of dislike how nostalgic I am. Uh, it, uh, and, uh, and it's not so much through sitting around telling stories. Like, that's the way a lot of people are nostalgic. I'm, like, nostalgic uh, in a sensory way. Like, through what I see, what I hear, what I, like, smells. Like, those sorts of things. Like, when I see children opening Christmas gifts on Christmas Eve, it drives me crazy. Because I grew up opening no gifts before Jesus was born. Alright? You know, the wise men came to give gifts, alright? And uh, did Jesus get his gold, frankincense, and myrrh before he was born? No. WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's all I'm saying, alright? No, but like, that's what I experienced as a child, and I grew up with that tradition. And so, like, it's very important to me. Very nostalgic in that way. Like with smell, okay, so I was, um, my in-laws lived near uh, this summer camp where I met Katie and where I trusted my life to Christ. And so I was there this summer, I was going on a jog and I was just jogging along and I ran past this place that smelled like our old camp. Like it just had this, I, I can't ex, you know, describe it. I couldn't even describe it to Katie. It just smelled like the grounds of our old camp. And I was compelled. I ran about 100 yards. This is stupid. And I had to turn around and go back. And I was like, yes. About 20 feet worth of smell. I was like, that smells. That's amazing. Like there weren't any plants around either. That was the weird thing. It was like a mailbox and a ditch. I was like, what is this? I don't, I don't know, but... And it's with so smell, hearing, I'm the same way. All right, so like on my uh, iPod, iPhone, I have, you know, various playlists, you know, to listen to music. So, you know, I've got my 80s music. I've got my, you know, hymns and worship. And then I have uh, Sappy. I literally have a playlist that's called Sappy. I don't know. I just like looking back at songs. I mean, I'm just, I'm a, I don't know, I'm a wuss, all right? But now oftentimes people consider that kind of thing nonsense, nostalgia. But there's a way in which here that God, through, through David, redeems nostalgia. Specifically, worshiping God through the tangible. He redeems this. David's, David provides us here a, a sort of a higher nostalgia, a holy nostalgia. Right? He looks in the past and he sees something greater. He sees something that stands out above all his experiences. So for David, there were, there were encounters with Yahweh. But there was one best encounter with Yahweh. There was one highest encounter with Yahweh. Just being with him in his presence. In God's house for corporate worship. That's 
he looked back at that and thought, that's where I want to be. That time, that place with the person of the living God. And I can relate to this. I, I, when I am away from you guys and when I'm away from here, I look forward to worshiping with you. I, I really miss it. I miss being with you. I look forward to Sunday mornings worshiping with God's church. I miss it. I try to recapture it other places, but no one's as good as you. Alright, alright, so <laughs> I miss it. I, I love looking around and seeing different people's faces during announcements. I listen to announcements, don't worry Jen. But I love looking around and like just you're seeing different people. And I, I love, uh, have you ever stopped singing and just listen to, to, the, to the God's people sing as one voice? I, I, I get chills with that. I, I, I sense God's spirit in a profound way when I do that. I, like taking out my journal, or my, my moleskin, as I said last week, when, when the pastor begins and writing down the sermon title, I know I'm a nerd, but just, ha- just having that time carved out to listen, to receive from God's word, and to think and reflect. It's sweet time. The coffee, the donuts, the warm fellowship afterwards. I love it. Partaking together the Lord's Supper. Together. It is such sweet time. Now there are all kinds of reasons. There's a wealth of biblical data we could go through. To support why we ought to make a habit of coming together as one body to worship. But what David appeals to here is a longing that can't be explained merely through what is rational. It's through a real encounter. And do you want it? Have you tasted it? Here's how you can get it back again. Let's talk about how we can get it. How might we make, and this will be our last part, how might we make encountering the living God through church our thing? Being with God's people, encountering God, how can that be a one thing? The clue lies, I believe, back at the very beginning of verse 4. Look at that with me. And it's the combination of both asking, it's the one thing he asked for, the combination of asking, and the combination of seeking after. We should ask. We should inquire, ask God. God, I would love to get a taste of you. Lord, please, I want to experience you through God's people in your church, worshiping you, growing through your word, I want that. I want to be in a place where that can happen. There's also a seeking after that as well. Charles Spurgeon, great preacher, once said in his, his great volume on, on the Psalms, Treasury of David, he said, We shall find our wishes and desires to be like clouds without rain. To be like clouds without rain. Listen to that. Unless followed up by practical endeavors or efforts. Right, so if we just wish for something... It's like clouds, you know, that you, we often see moving along quickly on the Cayman horizon. They don't stick around for long. Eventually they go away. Unless followed up by practical endeavors, efforts. So your asking for his presence must be followed up by seeking it. And we see this uh, later in verse 4, right? He says, 
to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, right? That's very passive. I wish to gaze upon and inquire in his temple. A better translation is a seeking after God, finding God in his temple. So there's this experience, this encounter, you see that? But there's also this active inquiring, looking, seeking. It's got to be both. Imagine what David did to do this. What he may have done. Surrounded by enemies, unable to get to God's house, This is his prayer in Psalm 27. But he also seeks, he also plans, he also strategizes that we see in the narratives of David to break through enemy lines, to get to God's house more quickly. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do to make this a reality? Because I can't make you desire this. I can't make you desire God's presence. I can't say anything that would make you yearn to come on Sunday mornings and encounter the living God in and through His church, being with His people. But there's two things I can do this morning and I want to do. And one, that is affirm the rightness of such a desire. If, even if you just had little tastes of that with God's people in His church, if you have little tastes, I want to affirm to you that is, there's a rightness to that. There's a reason why you experience that in a profound way. I want to affirm that. But secondly, I want to exhort you to seek after it and not let it go. So this morning, I want to offer some strategic possibilities, if you will. Some strategies, some possibilities for seeking after this highest experience of God in and among His people and His church. Here's just some practical things to consider. If you want that, if you want to hold on to that in your life, some practical things. Don't think it's always just so spiritual. It is, profoundly. We need God's help. But it also takes you getting off your butt. Right? Or booty. We have children here, sorry. Alright? Go to bed earlier on Saturday night. Alright? That's very practical, simple. Go to bed earlier. I'm not setting like a curfew on you here. Alright? But if you, you know what time is too late to be out, go to bed an hour earlier. Don't make 10 o'clock mean too early in the morning the reason you don't get to encounter God in this profound way. Go one hour early. And I know that's hard, you know, if you're, you're, you're single. You know, there's something, oh man, S-A-T-U-R-D-A-Y. Of course, if you're single, you don't know that song most likely. But, you know, uh, that there's something out there. There's something out there that's more fun. It's going to be, I'm going to miss out. There's something, more, there's something magical out there I'm going to miss after 2, p, at 2 a.m. There's not. Let me tell you. There's nothing magical after 2 a.m. out there. I can go a lot of directions with that. But even if it was fun, it does not have the same satisfaction, the same sustained fulfillment of encountering God. Secondly, uh, don't let yourself start saying, I don't have to go to church, right? Because that's not wrong. It's just the wrong question. Anytime you start asking, I don't have to, Those kinds of questions are foreign to a relationship with God. They're foreign to grace. Christ has died for you. He loves you deeply. He wants to be with you. You get to go be with Him, with God's people. That's grace. It makes you, you want to be with Him. Third thing, pray, sing, make melodies in your heart on the way to church. The drive to church is not time to talk with your spouse about the family budget or other such matters. 
you're married or you come to church with someone, you, you know this experience, right? And I think it's often because, like, we don't get any other time of quiet to ourselves. And so, like, on the way to church, that'll be it. You know, we gather on Sunday mornings, specifically Sundays, because it's the anniversary of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That's how we don't gather on Saturdays. Christ rose from the dead. And so the tradition in church history can gather on Sundays, commemorate that Christ died for us. Through trusting in Him, we might rise with Him to everlasting life. And we commemorate that. It's our anniversary every Sunday. So let me ask you a question. Would you talk about your family budget on your anniversary with your spouse? No! That's a... All right, men, if you don't know that, let me tell you, no, you don't, right? You want to focus and celebrate on the love. Apply that to come in and worship with God's people as well. Uh, get involved. Here's the fourth thing. Get involved on Sunday mornings or on some other day. Because the tragedy is when you come to church, but you don't have any community you recognize. Make that experience more pleasurable by knowing people. Fifthly, uh, memorize Psalm 27.4. Memorize it. To remind yourself that this party is a priority. This celebration, this pleasure, this is a priority. Of course, there will be a big run, a big bicycle race, a big sea swim, and you'll go to it. I understand. Of course, you're, you're going to schedule a trip to arrive back on Sunday after the worship service. Just, you know, stretch out your time to max it out. You know, I, I get that. And, and that's between you and God. And that's fine. It really is. There's grace for that. But let me ask you this. Do you ever do the opposite? Do you ever go against your, maybe, what for some of us is our natural tendency? And to say, you know, I'm going to choose. I'm going to, I'm going to come a little early. I'm going to choose to be with God's people. I'm going to choose to continually seek after that. Finally, recall the grace of God. Many are, are hesitant or reticent to come to church because you live in guilt and you live in shame. You know how you've lived during the week. You know the state of your heart isn't in a good place. And so there's no way you're going to come to potentially be judged for Pastor Ryan to say, hey, great to see you. And that means, oh, I haven't been in six weeks. What is he saying to me? I don't know. <laughs> you, you feel like you have to clean yourself up, take a spiritual shower, scrub off all that sin. Our mission at sunrise is to introduce people to Jesus and help them grow by his grace. Not just introduce Jesus who accepts us as we are the first time, but grow by that. Grow by his forgiveness of sin. Grow by his cleansing us. Not by anything we do, but by faith in him alone. That's always available to you as a son and a daughter of the living God whom you can always encounter. This church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners who through Christ's work are called saints. Famous evangelist D.L. Moody was once visiting a prominent Chicago citizen. And when the idea of church involvement came up, this guy said to D.L. Moody, I believe I can know God just as well and be just as good a Christian outside the church as I can be inside of it. Moody said nothing. Instead, this was so cool, he, he moved to the fireplace, which was blazing against the winter outside. 
And he removed one burning coal in the fireplace, placed it on the hearth. And he and his friend slowly watched the ember die out on its own. I see, said the other man. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that through Christ, we can experience such a fire. But that fire burns much deeper. It glows more radiantly when we're with the people of God, worshiping, growing together through his word, fellowshipping with one another. There's something about this, Lord, that you cared about. You wrote through your servants, Lord, all these letters to churches. You cared about the church. You talked about how we're supposed to use gifts together as a church. How we're supposed to make a habit of this. Because there's a sense in which we get to know the living God more fully. We get to experience and encounter Him more vividly. So we come together. So Lord, I pray for all of us, for me included, Lord, that there would be a fondness for worshiping together, for being together. For those who are with us this morning, in some ways the sermon's better for people who aren't here, I guess. But that, that the desire would be to be with your people so we might encounter you. We can encounter you throughout our day, throughout our week, but just in a more profound way, Lord, and in a different way. We ask this through Christ, who alone allows us to approach the throne of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.